So, A'udhu Billah, Samia Al-Aleem, Minash Shaitan, Al-Ain Al-Rajeem, Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Dear brothers and all followers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, in the progression and the logic of everything that we have uh, presented until now, it should be very clear that we have established by now the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad and that we have established very clearly the uh, main miracle that Prophet Muhammad has used to uh, establish his religion, to establish the truthfulness of his message. And with this, it should be very clear that the Holy Quran represents two things for Prophet Muhammad The first is that it represents his main miracle, the miracle that establishes his prophethood, his messagehood to humanity. And secondly, it represents uh, the core of the teachings of the Holy Prophet. And this is in that manner, this is why the Holy Quran is different from any other miracle that we have seen in other prophets, because those other miracles were only used to establish the prophethood of those prophets. They were not used to also include all of the uh, all of the teachings of those prophets. So now that we have done this, we basically have a couple of points left to close off the topic related to the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad And so this is the specific prophethood. The first one has to do with his religion and his message and his mission and mandate to humanity being a universal mission and secondly being a final uh, and secondly being a final mission what do we mean by this what we mean is that now that we have clearly established that prophet muhammad وسلم, is actually a messenger and a prophet of allah and we have established that his main miracle is the holy quran we have established that the Holy Quran contains all of its teachings. And remember what we established the last time, which is that this Quran is actually authentic. This is the same Quran that was revealed to Prophet Muhammad that he gave to his followers and which has been memorized and which has been transcribed and kept and protected through generations and generations of Muslims all the way down, passed down to us today. So now with this, we want to kind of close the loop on this idea, on this topic of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad And we want to do this by looking at a specific aspect of his prophethood. And this is the aspect of uh, the final, the finality of the religion. In other words, that this is the last religion to humankind, one. And two, that this is going to be a universal religion. In other words, this is a religion, this is a mission. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends his prophet Muhammad to humankind, he sends him to all of humankind. He's not sending him only to a group of people. He's not only sending him to a tribe or people who speak a certain religion or people who live at a certain time. He is sending him for humanity. So all human beings who live in his time 
have to adhere to his teachings and to his religion. And all human beings who will come after him must adhere and must follow his teachings and his religion. So when we talk about everyone, we talk about being universal. And one aspect of that universality of Islam means that it covers all aspects of life, that the message is communicated to everyone. And the everyone extends in time so that even people who are, who are not yet here must also follow that message. And that message is, continue, is going to continue to be there and continue to be valid until the end of times. So the great or the, the broader notion is the notion of the universality of Islam. And we add to that the notion of the finality of Islam. So if you want to be a little bit more specific, especially with regards to the timing, to the time factor, you say the finality of Islam. And when you want to talk about all the dimensions of life and that it includes all the people of the world, we talk about finality of Islam. The structure of this lesson, and I guys, you will notice that I'm using these slides because I think it covers pretty much the same topics as I've covered elsewhere with other groups. Uh, although these are not uh, customized to this, but inshallah, I'm working on something customized for us. So the overview of this lesson is that once uh, you know we introduce the topic properly as, as uh, we just started, we wanna talk about how Islam, first of all, is universal and establish this. And we will mainly rely on the, uh, we are going to rely mainly on the Quranic evidence for this. And then uh, secondly, we want to uh, look at the arguments for the finality of Islam. And then we are going to answer some of the main objections that we hear here and there related to the topic of uh, the universality and finality of Islam. Okay, so. The introduction. Until now, I think it should have become clear that as a good Muslim, as someone who believes in everything that we've presented until now, it should be very clear that there is an obligation. It is part of our system of belief. It is part of the obligatory teachings of Islam that we believe in all of the divine prophets, that we believe in all of the scriptures, that we believe in everything sent to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sent to humankind. We believe that Allah has sent prophets, has sent scriptures, we believe in them, we hold them sacred, we hold them holy, and we respect them, and we consider them all from a divine source. All the way down to Islam. So we go through all of the prophets, we believe in Adam alayhi salam, we believe in Nuh and Ibrahim, and, and, all the way to the Holy Prophet Muhammad And this includes also believing in his scripture and in his teachings as held in the Holy Quran and as it has explained by him in his traditions and in his way of life. Okay, so this part should be very clear until now. Now we ask a question. Does it mean, when I say that I believe in all of the prophets, does it mean that I'm allowed to work based, to act, to live, to adhere to the teachings of any of those prophets and to say that since it is a prophet of God and since it is someone who was sent from God to humankind, then it, everybody should be free to follow any of those prophets. You look at the Holy Quran and the Quran says that all of these prophets have been sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We do not distinguish between any of them. Uh, we do not distinguish between God's scriptures. We do not distinguish between his angels because it's all from divine source. Does this mean that we are going to uh, 
uh, allow anyone who believes in this set of teachings to believe in everything that we've said, does it mean that anyone is allowed now to follow any of those prophets, to follow any of the scriptures that we find today, and to say, I am therefore following the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? The short answer, and it should have become clear by now, but the short answer to this, and as a recap and a reminder, is that no, we cannot follow any of the prophets and any of the scriptures as we see fit and as we'd like to. First of all, and this is stuff that we covered in previous lessons when we talked about general prophethood, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends different prophets for different reasons. One of the main reasons is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best when a new set of teachings is required for humanity. This was very important. Then, this is one. Two, so after we agree that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows when best to send a new prophet with a new set of teachings, with a new religion, with a new scripture, scripture to humanity, and no one else knows this. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows when this needs to happen. And when it happens, the obligation, the necessity is that everybody follows this new set of rulings, of teachings that we call religion. Okay, there's someone, brothers, there's someone who's not uh, muted. Please mute yourselves. Okay, so that's the first reason. So can I follow any prophet? No, because as a good Muslim and as a believer in Allah, my duty is to know which prophet and which scripture am I supposed to be following at this time. Okay, brothers, there's someone still uh, not muted. Please mute yourselves. Okay, so... The second reason, and we mentioned this one as well, and I think we went in enough detail about it that we don't need to explain it in too much uh, more detail here, is that we said, even though there are many scriptures and there are many prophets, we know for a fact that those scriptures that we have today do not represent the divine scriptures that were given to those prophets, to the divine messengers sent to humanity. In other words, the road is closed. There is no way to go back to the scriptures and to the prophets sent with other religions to humankind. If there is a chance, as we said, it, it, it lies in the Quran and it lies in the Holy Prophet Muhammad So this is your only chance of going back to God. And that's why we spent time establishing his prophethood, establishing his miracle, establishing the authenticity of the Quran. So when you put this together, the short answer to this means that as a good believer, you are not allowed to say, I'm just going to pick and choose any prophet or any scripture that I feel like because they are all sent from Allah and we are asked to hold all of them sacred and holy. Yes, you are, but this doesn't mean that you're allowed to follow any of those scriptures. Your duty is to find the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to follow, which as we said, happens to be the prophet sent for your time, for your people. And we happen to be in a situation where the Prophet sent for our time and our people was also sent with a universal message that is for all of humankind, for all of humanity. So our time is the time of the Holy Prophet. And we are the people, as human beings, we are the people of the Holy Prophet today. Okay? So for those two big reasons, no one can come back now and say that we are going to follow any Prophet or any scripture as we like okay now we have to go back to islam what about islam if allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent prophet muhammad with a religion who says that today 
I have to follow to adhere to that same religion. He was sent 14 centuries ago to a group of people living at that time. And who says that there's not going to be another message sent to humanity afterwards that is going to be the one that is more appropriate for human beings to follow. Okay, that's what we're trying to answer today. So as we said until now, this is not a topic that you can just jump into. And I always repeat this because I know many of you get into these discussions uh, with all sorts of friends and people that you meet. And you have to make sure that if you're talking about a topic like this one, then this kind of topic obviously has to fall in the right place in your logical sequence. And I've given a lot of attention to this. So please, you know, always remember that. And when you're building your arguments and you're building your case, whether it's for yourself or for someone else, make sure that this is happening at the right time. I cannot jump into uh, this question, whether, uh, you know, Islam is the right religion for people today or not. If I have not established the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, that the Quran is authentic, that there is a God who sent prophets, all of this has to happen first. Okay, that's first. So if you're debating or discussing with yourself or with anyone else, follow the sequence, the logical sequence, so that you see is the issue really here or is the issue somewhere before? And because that has not been resolved, then of course here you're going not never to get the, the, the correct answer. The second point that is very important here, and I've mentioned it a few times when we talked about general prophethood. We said when we study general prophethood, we understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we say Allah subhanahu it's necessary that Allah sends prophets to guide humanity with a set of instructions that we call the revelation or a religion. Okay, so when we put all of this together, that made sense. But then we said, be careful. When we say we can theorize all of this, we can add the logical, rational layer around all of this. This doesn't mean that through reason alone, we are suddenly able to distinguish, to identify how many prophets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to send, when he needs to send them. Are they supposed to be sent with a new set of, uh, new set of teachings and revelation and scripture or not? Right? So we said that even though uh, reason can help us to reach a certain conclusion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to guide humanity through a set of teachings and instructions that we call revelation through prophets. This doesn't mean that through reason alone, we can say, therefore, this is a good time for Allah to send another prophet. That's not how it works. And we've explained that and we explained why it is. And the Quran clearly states that as well. We do not choose when Allah sends a prophet or how Allah sends a prophet, to which people and with what miracle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides with infinite wisdom when a new prophet is required and whether that new prophet is going to be sent with a new set of instructions or simply going to continue the previous instructions that were put in place by previous messengers and prophets. So this needs to be kept in mind as we continue with this topic. Now, We've established, as we said, the, uh, the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad We've established that the Holy Quran is the authentic set of teachings of Prophet Muhammad his scripture. Now we want to jump into the universality of Islam. We said the first proof that Islam is actually a universal religion 
The first proof is that Muslims and non-Muslims who have studied Islam are very clear that since the beginning of its mission, Islam has presented itself to the world as a universal call. And this is an important point. So when I say that Islam is universal and someone wants to come and say, no, Islam never claimed to be universal, but there are people afterwards who try to take something that was meant to be specific and particular and limited and generalize it and make it into a way of life and make it into something that everybody has, it has to adhere to. We say you haven't studied Islam. Anyone who studies Islam properly will see that from the beginning of Islam, the call to Islam was always a universal call. The Holy Prophet did not limit the call to Islam to a certain group of people or people who speak only one language or people who only live at a certain time. The Holy Prophet from day one said that I, am, I have been sent to humanity with a message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of humanity, every human being who lives in my time and until the end of times has a duty and an obligation to follow this set of teachings from God. This was the message of Prophet Muhammad so first of all, everybody is unanimous that this is what Islam says. Secondly, if we look at the behavior of the Holy Prophet and what he did once Islam started, we see that he actually called everyone to Islam from the beginning. And so as you see here, the Holy Prophet wrote letters inviting the heads of the states, the kings and the Caesars and the emperors of his time, of the other civilizations to enter into Islam. He wrote to the, the Persian Empire, and he wrote to Byzantium, and he wrote to the Egyptian uh, head of state, and, the, and Abyssinia, and elsewhere. He kept writing letters to them to tell them to call them to enter into Islam along with their nations. So no one can come afterwards and say the call to Islam was never meant to be a universal call. It was meant to be a universal call from the beginning. So, you know, you have some of the numbers here today we know that there are at least 50 letters that were written from the Holy Prophet calling people from other denominations to Islam. And we have 80 or more treaties, and there's 30 of them that are in full text, and others that are mentioned partially, and that exist only partially, that, and that gives us at least 110, where the Holy Prophet wrote 110 letters, if not more, to people living in elsewhere in the world, believing in other sets of values and religions and principles, calling them to enter into Islam, in addition to the monks and the priests and others, where the Holy Prophet is also inviting them to enter into Islam. Okay, so all of that, inshallah, should be clear, that when we look at the, Holy, the life of the Holy Prophet, we see that he himself implemented the universality of Islam himself as part of his teachings. Now we, we go to the Holy Quran. What does the Quran say? Well, first of all, let's remember, we have established that the Holy Quran is reliable, that the Holy Quran is the authentic teaching of Allah as passed down to Muhammad. This is, this is important to say, because if you actually believe that this is the book of Allah, if you actually believe that these are the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then let's, let us come to this scripture and see what does it actually say. Does this scripture say that it is being, the addressing, it is, is it addressing, what does it say about itself? Is it addressing a certain group of people? 
only those who speak a certain language, only those who live in a certain time or in a certain place, or is it sent to all of humankind? Is it sent to all of humanity? Let's go and look at a few, a few kinds, categories of verses where this is, I think, it should be very clear to anyone who looks at it. The Quran, as we said, is extremely specific, is extremely uh, meticulous and precise in the way it uses its words. So when it says something, it means it. The Holy Quran here, in, in the verses that you have in front of you, there's, I think, one, two, three, four of them, and there are so many of them. There are four examples of verses where the Holy Quran talks to humankind. If the Quran was only sent to a group of people, would it talk to all of humankind or only to those people? The Quran says, Ya ayyuhan nas. And nas is all human beings. There is no limit here to age. There's no limit, limit to your gender or your age or your race, ethnicity, language that you speak, when do you live, so on and so forth. So here are some of the examples. O humankind, indeed, we created you from a female, from a male and a female, and made you nations and tribes that you may know one another. Indeed, the noblest of you before Allah is the most God-weary among you. A second verse, O humankind, worship your Lord who created you and those who were before you. A third kind, a third verse, O humankind, be wary of your Lord who created you from a single soul. A fourth verse, O humankind, you are the ones who stand in need of Allah. These verses are very clear that the ones being addressed are not a specific nation, a race, people who speak a language. It's all the entire race, the species, humankind. Everyone is going to be included in this message. <clears throat> we'll come back to that question at the end. There's a question and we'll come back to it at the end, inshallah. The second uh, set of verses that have to do with this talk about, O children of Adam. So if the Quran is talking to the children of Adam, which means basically all human beings, can, come, can someone come back and say, for instance, that it is talking only to those who speak a certain language or those who live at a certain time or those who live in a certain place? O children of Adam, let not Satan tempt you as he caused your parents to exit from the garden. And in another verse it says, Did I not exhort you, O children of Adam, saying, Do not worship Satan, he is indeed your manifest enemy? This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking. And then the Quran, or this religion, being a guidance for humankind. The month of Ramadan, Surah Al-Baqarah, the month of Ramadan, the month of Ramadan is one in which the Quran was sent as a guidance to humankind, not to a group of people, not only to the Muslims who are asked to fast. Quran was sent down as guidance to humankind. Another verse, a book we have sent down to you that you may bring humankind out from darkness into light. This is a proclamation from for humankind so that they may be warned thereby. Certainly we have made this Quran interspersed with every kind of parable, mithal, amthila, for humankind. Again, had we sent down this Quran upon a mountain, you would have surely seen it humbled and go to pieces with the fear of Allah. We draw such comparisons for humankind so that they may reflect. Okay, and so if we continue, 
with some more verses. When we look at the Quran, it says, for all the people, for the worlds, for al-alameen, it is just a reminder, the Quran, in huwa illa dhikrun, it is just a reminder for all the worlds, al-alameen. The prophetic mission. So this is when the Quran talks about the mission that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to Prophet Muhammad What type of mission is it? What does Allah say to the Holy Prophet? Are you sent to a group of people, let's say the Arab speakers, or are you sent to everyone? It says the Quran, and we sent you as a messenger to humankind. Linasi Rasula. Say, O humankind. This is the Quran telling the Holy Prophet what to say to everyone. Say, O humankind, I am only a manifest warner to you. Another verse, we did not send you except as a bearer of good news and a warner to all humankind. And another verse, blessed is he who sent down the criterion, Al-Furqan, what allows you to distinguish, gives you the criteria to distinguish between right and wrong. Blessed is he who sent down the criterion to his servant that he may be a warner to all the worlds. And this Quran has been revealed to me, the Holy Prophet says, and the Quran teaches him to say, and this Quran has been revealed to me that I may warn thereby you and whomever it may reach. Whomever it may reach has to be warned by this Quran. This Quran applies to whomever it reaches, regardless of the language, regardless of the ethnicity, regardless of the time, regardless of the place of where they live. Okay, and we have many verses in the Holy Quran that I'm not going to get into so that we don't uh, lose too much time. We have many, many other verses in the Holy Quran that end with, at the end, first of all, there are many verses that talk about those people who believe in other scriptures, Ahlul Kitab, the people of the book, the people who had received a scripture and a revelation. The Quran constantly calls them to come back and enter into this new religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to humankind. So this also seals the deal. And then finally, we have verses in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this specific term is repeated in at least three verses and repeated in other verses in a different uh, terminology, in a different way. The Quran says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent this prophet so that he guides people with the religion of truth and to elevate this religion above all religion. Does this mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants other religions to coexist? Or does it mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts, ex expects everyone to enter into this religion? Although, of course, it's not being imposed, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's guidance, if you want to enter into this guidance, then the way to enter into this guidance is through the teachings of the Qur'an and the teachings of the Holy Prophet. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see from humankind so that this religion may prevail or be elevated above all religion. Okay? Now, the second aspect of the religion of Islam, as we said, the first aspect is the universality of the, of the mission so that it applies to everyone. The second aspect is the finality of the mission, so that it is going to remain valid and remain in effect until the end of times. And there are no other religions that will appear 
from that will be sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for human beings to follow. Once again, the first argument for this is that the same argument we said for the universality, we have to say for the finality. From the beginning of Islamic teachings, from the beginning of the time when there were Muslims, anyone who has known about Islam, studied Islam, knows that it says about itself that this is the final religion, that there will not be any other religions after it. There will not be any other teachings from Allah to humanity except what is found in the Holy Book and in the teachings of Prophet Muhammad and his Ahlul Bayt Okay, so the unanimity around the idea that there will not be any other religions and revelations after Islam. Everybody is unanimous about this. That's one. Two, when we look at the verses of the Quran calling people to Islam, some of which we just saw and there are many others, we see that none of them are saying that this religion has any limit in time or that it is only applicable only until such time as or until next prophet is sent, which we find in other scriptures. Okay, so never do you see in the Quran any limitation to the teachings or to the extension in time, to the effect of these teachings in time uh, that are given to humankind. That's two. Three, the Quran, when it talks about itself, always presents itself as being an eternal truth, as being an absolute truth. So the teachings themselves are considered to be teachings that will be everlasting. And the Quran, when it talks about itself and what, is, what it is presenting to humankind, it presents it as being an eternal and absolute truth that will always be in effect until the end of times. If you look at some verses of the Quran, one of them is the one that we just recited. It is he who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth that he may make it prevail over all religions, though the polytheists should detest it. And that last part of the verse is the part that changes in the other uh, two instances where it shows in the Quran. In another verse in the Quran, when it talks about itself, it says it is an unassailable scripture, a scripture that you cannot beat, okay? No falsehood can approach it from before it or from behind it or after it, depending on how you interpret it. So before it, it is sent down by one full of wisdom, worthy of all praise. So it will never lose its validity or its authority. And then, if we look at the narrations of the Holy Prophet, because we've only concentrated on the Quran until now, but if we go back to the Holy Prophet, because he is the one who explains what the Quran is saying, he has been very clear from the beginning that his prophethood and that his message and that his scripture is the last one, that there will not be anything that will be revealed to humankind afterwards. And as part of that, this is when he says, the Holy Prophet says, for instance, it means that nothing is going to ever change from these laws. If it is forbidden, it stays forbidden. There's not a new scripture that's going to come and say it's no longer forbidden. And the opposite, if something is made halal now, no other scripture is going to come and say that this is no longer uh, permissible or licit or uh, prohibited or prescribed. Nothing is going to change the teachings of the Holy Prophet until the end of times, until the day of judgment. 
What are some of the objections to this? And I know that we have one on the chat. The first one. The first one is there are some people who want to go and look at some verses of the Quran. For instance, there is a verse of the Quran that says, Warn the nearest of your kinsfolk. They look at some verses of the Quran and they say there is proof in the Quran that the Quran itself is limited in its invitation, is limited in its call to humanity. It is not absolute and universal and it's not there for the final religion to humankind. Okay, so these verses, what do we do with them? So one verse says, for instance, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet, call or warn the nearest of your kinsfolk, those of your tribe who are the nearest to you, invite them to Islam. And we have, so that you may warn the mother of the cities, and those around it. So now people are saying, based on this verse, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet, only warn Mecca and the cities around Mecca. And then we have another verse in the Quran, that is used for this purpose by some, and they say that you may warn a people to whom there did not come a warner before you. But there are people who have been warned by someone else, by another prophet. So are you not a warner to them? Okay, so what is the answer to this? First of all, the prophetic mission, the mission of the Holy Prophet, for strategic reasons, for divine wisdom that we do not completely always understand fully, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked the Holy Prophet to begin his prophetic mission at a very small scale and to start inviting people who are very, very close to him at first to Islam and then slowly, slowly expanding this call to Islam with time until it became a universal call. So, if we are going to look at what the Qur'an says, you have to take that part into consideration. Yes, there will be verses of the Qur'an that are talking to the Holy Prophet and telling him, at this point in your prophetic mission, you are only going to invite those who are the closest from your tribe. And then after that, you are going to invite the people who are living in all of Mecca and the surrounding cities. But as we saw in the final state of Islam, the Holy Prophet, once the entire message has been revealed and the entire Qur'an has been revealed, the Qur'an clearly says that he is being sent to all of humankind, all of humanity, and that this is not limited to a group or a tribe or, or, or. Okay? So this is the, in short, the answer to this, and we're not going to go into the details of each one of these verses and many others. So this is the first answer to uh, the first objection. The second objection that someone may say, yes, and I saw the, uh, the second answer, by the way, brother, the second question, and we'll get to it, inshallah. The second objection is that all religions are good. So if you look at a verse like the one that we find in Surah Al-Ma'idah, it says, indeed, the faithful, the Jews, the Sabians, the Christians, those who have faith in Allah in the last day and act righteously, they will have no fear, nor will they grieve. So people want to look at this verse and other verses like it and they say all of them are going to enter heaven, all of them are going to go to heaven and there is no reason for anyone who follows any of these religions, especially the ones mentioned in the verse, to even worry about having to enter into Islam or not. So what's the answer here? The short answer is, first of all, this verse is not saying all of these people are going to enter into heaven or not. 
In fact, this verse is kind of saying the opposite. This verse, if you read it very carefully and you do its tafsir fully, you understand the verse is saying, it is not enough for you to just say, I'm a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim, and then think that you're going to enter heaven without acting righteously. So that's why the Quran in this verse, it says, those who have faith in Allah and the last day and act righteously, they will have no fear, nor will they grieve. So it's important to put all of these conditions together. That's what the verse is saying. It's not saying who enters and who doesn't enter. So the second objection that someone may have against the Holy Quran being a uh, universal call and a final call to human being, as we said, is that we have uh, verses in the Quran that seem to indicate that anyone who follows any of the other faiths that seem to be recognized by the Quran, such as the Sabi'ah, such as the Jews, such as the Christians, then all of these people are going to enter into heaven. As we said, the first, asp this first answer to this question is that this is not the case because you cannot use these verses to say the Quran is saying all of these people are entering into heaven. These verses are saying that it is not sufficient for you only to claim to say, because I am a Muslim, just with the words, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, that to think that just simply saying that your adherence to any of those faiths by name is enough. You have to have true faith in Allah and the last day, and you have to act righteously. And if you do not do that, then it's not enough for you to be saved simply by saying you are going to enter into heaven because you're a Jew or a Christian or a Savior. That's one. Secondly, related to that, as we said, the verse is not really talking here in detail, but when you combine it with the other verses, it is clear that there is a time for you to be a Jew. If you happen to be living at the time of Prophet Musa السلام, for instance, and he is the one who is explaining the divine guidance to you through the Torah, your duty as a human being at that time is to be a Jew. And if you happen to be living at the time of Jesus Christ, and when he is explaining the divine teachings, your duty at that time is to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you happen to be living at the time of the Holy Prophet and afterwards, your duty is to follow Islam. So you cannot pick and choose, as we said at the beginning, because you feel like you adhered to a religion before and Islam is recognizing that all of these religions did come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at a certain point and that they do have a divine source and that they do carry holy and sacred elements in them. And then, of course, when you add the component that we, I think, explained in enough detail until now, which is that when we said that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to say today that any of the scriptures that currently exist are actually the authentic scriptures of any of the other prophets, then this point entirely should be moot and should not even be discussed because there is no way for me to follow any of those religions because I do not have access to those teachings as they were given to those prophets. Okay, the next point or the next objection that may be raised against the universality or the finality of uh, Islam is that there are people who say when you look at Islamic law and you look at certain verses in the Quran, we see that they seem to be uh, distinguishing between those who are uh, kitab, those who follow a book and those who do not follow a book. So if you are following a book, a certain set of laws in Islam are going to apply to you. And if you're not following the book, so you're not one of the Jews or the Christians, then 
another set of laws is going to apply to you. And so they want to use this as an argument to say, therefore, the Quran is not asking, or Islam or the Holy Prophet is not asking the Jews and Christians to enter into Islam. It is recognizing the authenticity or the validity of their belief. And based on that, it is completely up to them. If they feel like entering, they can, but they're not even asked to. And it is perfectly fine for all of Ahl al-Kitab to continue to maintain their faith and to follow the scripture that they currently have in the form of the Old New Testament, the Torah, the Gospels, and so on and so forth. When we look at this set of rulings and the verses of the Quran that talk to the Jews and the Christians, you cannot conclude from them that the Quran is not asking them to enter into Islam. In fact, the call to Islam was universal and a very large part of the call of Islam was specifically directed to the Jews and the Christians. That they should enter this religion before everyone else because they know the truth. And they know that the prophecies in their own scriptures, especially their scholars, they know that the prophecies of their own scriptures were clear in stating that there is a prophet who will be sent at the end of times. And these, this person who has been sent, Prophet Muhammad, the prophecies apply to him perfectly. And they know this very well. So they should be entering this religion not only because of what this Holy Prophet has brought to them, but because they are believers in Jesus and because they are believers in Moses and their scriptures, they should be entering into this religion. This is what the Quran tells them. But if they decide not to, and the Quran does not want to impose its rulings and its teachings on everyone, it's going to accept, to allow, for at the time of the Holy Prophet, he is trying to build an Islamic society. For him to build an Islamic society, the people generally living in that society, in order to cohabit and coexist together, they need to have certain things that they are in agreement about. Otherwise, you are going to have chaos and you're going to have to have in war and battling between the people living in the same state. They have to agree on certain things. And so in the case of Ahl al-Kitab, the Quran says, so after everything that has been presented to you, if you still decide not to enter into this religion, fine. You may keep your own faith because there is a minimum in there, in your faith, that allows you to coexist with the Muslims because you have the same foundations. You all come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You all agree on the same main principles of, of uh, your source, which is God, prophethood and revelation and religion and the afterlife and what awaits you. So because you believe in general in those, we're not going to impose on you the other things, the other restrictions. You can coexist with us, but this is what applies to you as a set of rulings so that society can work and function properly. This does not mean that Islam considers these people to be free from entering into this religion. Okay? So inshallah, this part is clear. <clears throat> So we'll come back to the, the chat questions at the end. The second point to this is, of course, we do not know in a perfect world because we did not see a perfect world yet. We believe that that perfect world will happen once Imam al-Hajj reappears and he is going to show us what a perfect world is going to look like and a just society looks like. Until then, 
we are working with the external legal systems that have been put in place. And today, none of these actually apply because the Islamic State, as it existed at the time of the Holy Prophet, does not exist and cannot exist because the conditions are completely different. Okay, so the main argument related to the people of the book that because they are the people of the book, they do not need to enter into Islam, that Islam recognizes their faith as being valid and authentic and all of that. These do not hold water. Anyone who reads the Quran objectively knows that this is not what the Quran is saying. And here we have some verses of the Quran that talk to the people directly, addresses the people of the book, Ahl al-Kitab, so the Jews and the Christians. So let's read these verses very quickly together. The first one says, O people of the book, Certainly our messenger has come to you. Certainly our messenger has come to you clarifying the divine teachings for you after a gap in the messengers. So there has not been any messenger sent to humanity or to you for a while. Lest you should say, so, in, so that you do not say, you never say, there did not come to us any bearer of good news or any warner. Certainly there has come to you a bearer of good news and a warner and Allah has power over all things. O people of the book, certainly our messenger has come to you clarifying for you much of what you used to hide of the book and excusing many an offense of yours. Certainly there has come to you a light from Allah and a manifest book. You are the best nation ever brought forth for humankind. You bid what is right and forbid what is wrong and have faith in Allah. And if the people of the book had believed, it would have been better for them. Among them, some are faithful, but most of them are transgressors. O people of the book, why do you defy Allah's signs while you testify to their truth? O people of the book, why do you clothe or mix the truth with falsehood and conceal the truth while you know? Say, O people of the book, why do you defy the signs of Allah while Allah is witness to what you do? When you look at these verses, and there are many, many others, we just put a few of them together to kind of get a general vibe. The Quran is basically saying that if you still decide not to enter formally into this religion, you may decide to do so. We're not going to impose this religion on you. But you know the truth, and the truth that you are hiding is that this is a prophet and that his book is a light that clarifies your own teachings, that shows you the truth itself, and your duty is to enter into this religion like everybody else. But if you choose not to, you are free like others are free to do so, okay? So there were three questions. I did not note them down. I do remember that the first question had to do with how come the Quran is in Arabic? If this is a universal and final message to humankind, then why is the Quran in Arabic? To be honest with you guys, and you will tell me, and uh, I, I have to make sure that I open the chat here so that I can see, uh, we can either dedicate a full lecture to this because it does deserve its own lecture. Why does Islam present its main teachings, the Quran and the Holy Prophet spoke in Arabic, the Quran is presented in Arabic, this deserves its own lecture. We can certainly have a lecture dedicated to this topic where we can go into detail. But in short, I will answer very quickly. And if you guys still feel like you, you want a full lecture, we can dedicate the next lecture or the one after that. We can dedicate it to this topic.
in short, in short is that the first clue or the first answer is that human beings need a communication. And a communication is going to be in one language or another. So this point is unavoidable. One. Two. The reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses a prophet from a specific nation and not another, or a specific time and not another, as we said, lies beyond the scope of our reason. We will never understand the full reason of this. That's two. Three. And here are the two main answers that you will find in classic works in addition to the two answers I just gave. The first part of this answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to communicate to human beings the most complete, perfect message to guide them in the most effective way. And people who have studied languages tell us that the best language to do this, the most meticulous, the most precise, the most rich of all languages, and this part requires its own lecture, to show how to demonstrate this, because this is just a cheap claim, unless you go and study it. No religion, no language compares to what the Arabic language can do in terms of its expressiveness, in terms of how com uh, complex, sophisticated, meticulous it is as a language. And so this makes it the most effective language for humankind to receive this message. Does it mean that the message is limited to the Arabic language? No, it's not. Anyone can take this message and translate it. Will you get the full gist? Of course not. To the extent that you are a good translator of what is in Arabic, you are going to be able to retransmit and communicate what's there to others. And depending on the tool receiving, so not every language is equal. Some languages are a lot stronger and richer and better and more effective at certain things than others. There are languages that have different pronouns. There are languages that are better at colors. There are languages that are structured differently. So when you study linguistics, you see all of this come to life and you see how Arabic language is completely distinguished from all the other languages because of its expressive and effective way of expressing itself. So that's one reason. The last reason is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from our limited point of view and perspective, I think we can, we seem to be able to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended specifically to send the Holy Prophet at that specific time, in that specific location of the world, and to those specific people, because he knew that that would be the best way for that message to disseminate to the rest of the world in due time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't do anything randomly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes things work through the material causes and means in the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that the best people who would carry that message and who would make it last would happen to be those living at that time and they needed someone to be sent at that specific time in that specific way to communicate the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to them. And that's why he sent the Holy Prophet to those people at that time. And one way to link this is perhaps to say how the Holy Prophet was able to be successful in the 23 years that he was there, which is nothing when you look at the grand scheme of things at the level of the history of humankind. This is absolutely nothing. What's 23 years? If you look at generations and you look at centuries, 23 years is absolutely nothing. And he basically changed the world. 
And that's why Michael Hart and others have said that he is the greatest, you know, the greatest of all figures in human history, because he has been the most effective, because he was the most influential. And one of the reasons why he was able to be that influential, of course, he, there is a huge part of this that is an individual effort. But there's also the material means and causes that include the people that he's delivering this message to. And if it were not for those people who received the message, who became some of the most obedient and uh, good companions to the Holy Prophet and who carried that message forward, then it looks like maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that that message would not have made it to us today. It would have been uh, killed or it would, have been, it would have died much earlier. So this looks like it's one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses this type, this means of communicating the message and to these people first that will eventually communicate it to the rest of humankind. Okay? Now, there was a second, uh, how come in the Quran it didn't only include teachings that are not time contained? Uh, in the Quran, it didn't include teachings that are not time contained. Um, so if you can explain that question, please. <coughs> uh, you muted yourself again. I think, oh. Yeah, go I, ahead. I, can you, okay. Um, so my question is basically like, you know how some, like, as you basically said earlier, some of the things that are in the Quran are just for the time of the Prophet and like how it, it happened uh, by levels, like at, by the start it was just something small and then it became, at the end when the whole religion was done, then it became forever. So so my question is why, 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 did, why did God decide to put stuff in the Quran that was only just for the time of the Prophet if the time was gonna pass and the book of the Quran is gonna stay forever? Yeah, so this is a good question. And there are a lot of different versions that we can ask of this question. The bottom line is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala included in the Quran what he thought would serve as a very important, crucial point for the guidance of humankind. So in this, from these verses, what we can easily take out is all the lessons from the life of the Holy Prophet and to understand how this religion and how this mission actually evolved from day one all the way until it became a full mission and a full religion. We understand what the Prophet had to endure. We understand, I mean, obviously, when you hear the Holy Prophet is told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, So don't you want to understand, so when was this revealed? Why was this revealed? Who are Ashirataq al-Aqrabeen? What lessons can I take from the life of the Prophet and the manner in which he approached the people of his tribe? And did they accept him or not? What happened? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala included in the Quran, yes, there were things that were very valid and maybe valid in a different way to the people living at that time when it was being revealed, but it, was, it would certainly be very, very important for us to study those and extract lessons from them for our lives and for ourselves to see what does it mean when the Quran talks about the beginning of the mission of the Holy Prophet, when the mission was not yet. We have, if you go to the history of the Prophet, there was a point in time when the mission is called Sirri, okay? Was it secret or secretive? The Holy Prophet made sure not to tell everybody that, you know, this is a new religion, everybody come and enter it. And of course, this always goes back to the material causes. 
the Holy Prophet cannot just stand on a rooftop and say, everybody come and enter into Islam. If you do that, then you're not going to get the proper way of disseminating your message. You have to be smart. You have to be strategic. You have to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this world and it functions through the material means. People think in a certain way. You can't overnight tell them, and here are the 1,200 rules that you have to follow from now on. No one is going to listen to you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this religion progressively and taught the Holy Prophet how to do it so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes sure that this religion is being explained to humankind in the most effective manner and in the manner in which most, the most people benefit from it. The most guidance happens to the most people over time as opposed to it dying way too soon, which should have happened based on all the material means and all the material uh, factors at that time because of so many people being against the Holy Prophet for all sorts of different ways and reasons, mainly because of material gains lost in this life if they don't follow him. Okay, so that's kind of the short answer to this. You would like a lecture on the Arabic dimension of Islam, and inshallah, we will prepare one if the others are also in agreement. The next question is, the other question was about the difference in maraja and fatawa, if the halal and haram is the same since the Prophet until the end of times. This is a deep, complex issue that we don't have time. Again, this one would require a separate lecture, but very quickly. The difference between the maraja and the fatawa, why do we need a marja and a fatwa? I don't need a marja and a fatwa when I have a ruling that is explicitly stated in the Quran or explained by the Holy Prophet. So you have a hadith that tells you, for instance, this is how you are to perform your wudu. This is how you are to perform your salah. So if you go from one marja to another, basically it's a copy paste when you look at how you're going to perform your wudu. So you don't really need maraja and fatawa for wudu. Where do you need them? Where you need them is when there are things that are happening today that did not happen in the past or that may have happened in the past in a different way and you don't know anymore which applies to them, which ruling applies to them, which hadith or which verse of the Quran, can you apply them or not? And this happens in the cases where there's something completely novel, something new, something that humanity that has not really encountered since the time of the Prophet, this is where I need the people who are going to look at this type of novel, new situation with the expertise that they have from religion. So they are experts on law. They understand the Holy Quran and its spirit and its details and its rulings. They understand the life of the Holy Prophet. They understand the life of the Imams and they know how to apply what the Imams have taught us to apply as main principles to everyday events that we may not have encountered in the rulings already. So I'm not looking at things that are related to wudu or performing my salah. This everybody agrees on. Where it may be different is we have a completely new reality. Can I get into the stock market or not? Okay, well, this is a completely new reality where I need ijtihad, where I need someone to become an expert in religion and to tell me which ruling applies here. What does, what does the Islamic financial system say in the case of something like a stock or something that is virtual or something like a mortgage from a bank with interest and so on and so forth? This is where you have to go back to the marja, you have to go back to the fatwa. They all agree that the true halal and haram 
that is known by the Holy Prophet, that is in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's teachings, in the mind of the Holy Prophet, in the mind of the Imams, those exist. But how do we access them? We can't access them. So the faqih, the mujtahid, and the, the person giving you the fatwa, they work to the best of their ability to try to reach the truth. Do they actually reach the truth? We don't know. All we know is we are using the tools available to us in the best possible way to try to reach the truth. And if we had access to our Imam, then we would ask the Imam and we would know the truth. But we don't. So you need these different scholars who work with their own tools, each with their own tools and their own theories and how they read and understand and they spend their lives doing this to try to find the answers to these questions to which there are no ready answers uh, that have been given through the Holy Quran and the Ru'ayat. Inshallah, this answered the uh, question. So obviously not every uh, individual instance of anything that could be encountered in human life is going to be mentioned in the Holy Quran, right? We believe that the principles of those are mentioned in the Holy Quran, and people based on their expertise in the Qur'an are going to be able to apply the main principles of the Qur'an to everyday instances. So that's in that sense in which the halal remains the halal and the haram remains haram. Inshallah, this answered the question. I'm going to skip the one on coronavirus. Uh, I don't know what the question is, just general thoughts. I don't think there's enough time for that. We're almost at the time of the prayer. Uh, the last question, this question is not directly related to the lecture. It's important or wajib for us to follow on the sign of Al-Faraj. And will there be a lecture on this? So the signs in the sense of Alamat al-Zuhur, if this is what is meant, uh, inshallah we'll come back to this, but this is kind of a relative field. A field relative in the sense that it's not an absolute. I can't just say yes or no. The Imams have given us signs. Okay, and inshallah, we can give a lecture on this, although it was not meant to be happening right away. Um, we can certainly give a lecture on how to deal with alamat al-dhuhur, although I don't think we're there in the logical progression. The next topic should be concluding this and then starting the imama in general, and then we can get to imamat al-imam al-mahdi, ajallah ta'ala farajal sharif, and then we can talk about uh, the signs. The signs of the end of times and the reappearance of Imam al-Mahdi fall in different categories, brothers. Some of these are considered to be signs that are not certain. So while the Imams tell us that this may or may not happen, it may or may not happen. It's mentioned as a possible sign. So these signs are not certain. Depending on the way human history is going to evolve, this may or may not happen. That's one type of sign. A second type of sign, we have signs that are considered hatmi, certain. And when you drill down into them and you study them in detail, they really amount to nothing more than five signs. Five signs, that's not a lot. And those are Sufyani and Yamani, there's a Sayha, there's a Khasf al Bayda. These are five signs that are considered in some ruayat to be hatmi. In other words, this will happen for sure. We are told in some ruayat. But there is someone who came and asked one of the imams at some point, he asked the imam about these five and he told them, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, could he have bida? Okay, bida is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
to us, it looks like when we receive the hukum, when we receive the teaching from Allah, it looks like something changed. Okay? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changed the course of history one way or another. In our eyes, not to his eyes. But in our eyes, things were meant to go on a certain track and suddenly it goes on a different track. And someone asked the Imam, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, could he apply bid'ah to the certain signs? And the Imam said, of course. Which means that it looks like, of course, when the Imams tell us that these are the signs, there's all sorts of very good reasons for telling us that these are the signs for the end of times. It means that we need to be vigilant. We need to study the world in which we live in. We need to be aware. We need to be educated. We need to be prepared. But it also means that we also live in constant hope and with constant preparation for the reappearance of the Imam. We are contributing to these alamat. In one way or another, we have to see where we fit in. Does it mean that this is an exact science? It's not an exact science. The best we can do is look at the ruwayat and say in general, we have ruwayat that say, here are, we can put them in different categories. I just gave you two categories or three. And there are other categories, we can split them more. And we put them in categories and we say, these look like, you know, they could really happen. But we are also told by Ahlul Bayt never to give a specific timing, never to say this sign has happened 100%. We don't know that. You cannot do tawqeet as Ahlul Bayt tell us. Don't do tawqeet, don't do specific timing. Say there is a ruwayah that says Al Hassani will be killed, this person must be Al Hassani because you know two of the descriptions given to him seem to match. Very, very difficult, very dubious. And we're, our faith is not based on these, you know, uh, uh, relative probabilities that it may be this and maybe that. Of course, when you look around, you can say, it looks like to me, but it stays at your level as a personal opinion on this is how you're interpreting certain things. And maybe, you know, in 10 years or 15 years, you're going to interpret things in a very different way. So can we have a specific uh, lecture or many lectures on this? Of course we can. This is a very, very... Uh, important topic that I think fascinates a lot of people. Everybody wants to talk about Imam Mahdi, Ajallah Ta'ala, Farajar Sharif. Everybody wants to talk about his signs. We can certainly spend one or two or ten lectures talking about them. It certainly deserves to be talked about uh, as a general topic. But, uh, you know, as we've discussed and mentioned many, many times until now, what we're trying to do is to give the core arguments for our belief in Islam. We want to make sure that when we say we believe in Islam, we understand the main arguments for saying this, so that we understand them for ourselves and we know what to answer if someone asks us, or we want to call someone to our faith. Once this is out of the way, then we can get into very important things, but they are secondary, and inshallah we will get to them, and those certainly include the signs of the end of times and things of that matter. I believe that's all the questions that we had. And uh, unless there are any other questions, concerns, or answers, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, preoccupations from any of you, we are now at the prayer time. So unless there is anything else, uh, speak now, or, you know, we ask all of you to remember us in your prayers. quiet forever. Say that again. Um, I don't know where he went, but uh, let me just say my thing really quickly. Um, so you didn't, I don't, I didn't get the answer I kind of needed. Like my, my question was more like, uh, to make it more clear that like, 
if there is any commands that Allah wanted to say to the people of the Prophet's time, it could have went through the Prophet himself. <clears throat> so why why did he have to make it put it in the Quran? Like are so like when we when we see them in the Quran and with, like when we see them, can we take lessons from them? Or are they like nothing for us? If you see what I mean. Because some people say Oh, we can't listen to that. That's from back then. Yeah, so the short answer, that's exactly the answer that we gave. We gave a number of points, but one of them was that these are, first of all, we do not decide what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in his final guidance to humankind and what he doesn't. Okay, so that should be clear. We're not, we cannot object that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to include or exclude something from his final guidance to human beings. So in this case, for instance, someone could say, well, why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talk about a certain prophet? Or he talks about someone, but he doesn't mention his name. So we have to go back in the riwayat, And it seems like he's talking about Al-Khidr in Surah Al-Kahf, but he doesn't talk about him. He's just said, Abdan min ibadina. Okay, so what, why don't we object to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, well, he should have, no, we can't. Okay, it doesn't make sense. What we need to understand is why did Allah include those things and not others? And the only reason is the one you gave, which is, it means they are valid for us. There is something for us to take from them and to apply in our lives. So it may not be the exact specific teaching that is meant by this verse. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet, maybe this is a, a, a teaching to me. So that, and what can I learn from this? Well, if I'm about to give any teaching to human beings, if I want to call some uh, human beings to any truth, I should start with the people who are closer to me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked that from the Holy Prophet. So this becomes a lesson for me. And then I have to dig into the Quran and understand how to apply. Things don't, cannot be taken as is and applied as is. You, of course, there are things that apply to the time and the circumstances of the Holy Prophet that do not apply to us today in our circumstances. So you have to see what applies and what doesn't. What dimension applies and what dimension doesn't. What circumstance is the same and what circumstance is different. And then you can say, yes, there are things that happened in the time of the Holy Prophet that are different from our time today. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala included, in included them in the Holy Quran, it means it's very important. And I need to take those into consideration as I try to understand the final guidance sent to humankind for, as guidance. If it was included in there, there's a reason for it. My job when I read this is to understand what it is. It's not as simple as saying, if it's included, but it doesn't apply to me, I can just skip over it. Okay, inshallah, this answers and we can talk Thank more. You. In Thank you. Allah Okay, brothers. So I think that's it for the questions. Thank you very much. And uh, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma sallallahu